Well, hello, everybody. You're listening to the Woodworkers Podcast. I'm Ben Brunick. I've got Phil Morley and Ramon Valdez with me again this evening. How are you two guys doing? Doing good, Ben. Fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great, uh, especially beans that we've got a special guest on this evening. Um, David Boucher uh, of Boucher & Co. Um, out of um, the, sh- the workshop is out of Toowoomba, Australia, and they've got a, a private gallery in Sydney, Australia, and um, soon to be a private gallery in Singapore. David, thanks so much for being on. Hi, guys. Great to be here. Hey. Hello, David. How are you doing? <laughs> the top of the world. to have you on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Good, good, good to talk to you, David. Yeah, Very I know cool. all, all three of us are, are fans of your work, David. I mean, we see the work via Instagram, you know, and you, and you look through this crazy window into into the work that you do and uh it's just uh just amazing luxury items that that you guys produce i, I don't know i don't even know where to where to get started on this <laughs> right <laughs> it's, it, you're 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 in, a, you're in a class all your own i've i've mentioned that several times on on the instagram it's exquisite barely defines your your craft but anybody that sees your work can see that it is a another level uh, just yes. e- elite and extreme so yeah it's fantastic to have you on well thank yeah, you I, very I, much well i think we've got i think we've got a lot of different questions for you but I, I think the best place to start is just to just to hear kind of your somewhat of your backstory um you've been going at it now for is it 43 years yeah 43 years yeah okay that's awesome and I, I've I've gotten a chance to I've gotten a chance to read, you know, um, you had sent me uh, some information about you and and got a chance to read some story. But um, do you want to talk a little bit about like some of the things that h- how you got into what you're doing? Um, I, I mean, I know that's a, a, a compressed time, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did yeah, you go from from fruit shaped? Uh, breadboards to what you're doing now. <laughs> right. Yeah, okay. I mean, that, that's a, a good place to start. But it, I, I think probably stepping back a little bit, it it took it took me probably until I started trying to write this book some years ago that it took that long for me to really understand what was going on with the furniture, why I had this crazy burning desire to. To, to create the things that we do and to spend so much time and effort on fine detail and and entertaining people. And it wasn't until I sat down and thought about growing up as a kid on the farm, my mum and dad um, worked really hard on a, on, a, on a small farm, 200 acres, and uh, and put out a, made a living. And so during the day, I watched all of the things of, a, of a, an Australian bush farm you know outback farm the workings of that if it broke they fixed it if they didn't have one they thought about it for a while and they fiddled and faddled and welded and blacksmithed and then there was one and so I just had a sense of growing up that you can make things if you've got two hands and a head and a brain and you if you're not sure what to do you watch someone else do it and and you have a crack at it and and you can make things and then at night time, because this is pre-television and computers, I know a lot of people don't know there was a time, but <laughs> there was. 
There was. Uh, I even used to ride a horse to go to the picture theatre once upon a time. So, you know, there was a time. And uh, and that because of that, they ran a theatre company, an amateur theatre company, and they used to do light operatic and and Gilbert and Sullivan and all sorts of fun things to entertain the local community. Mm-hmm. So at night time, I watched theatre being produced and I watched it happening. So... I saw the magic behind and I That's just cool. finally got to a point where I guess I innately understood, even though I didn't really know what was going on, I understood that people like to be entertained. Mm. And so as we started, my first, oh, well, I, you, you know the backstory. I ran away from home when I was a young fellow. I never finished school and I've got no formal qualifications. And And my early work was actually on a road gang because... I, I had a pretty low opinion of myself when I started off in, in the world due to some really bad stuff that had happened to me. And uh, <clears throat> and so I, 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 my my soul was in the gutter, if you like, and so I started off in that space. And I, my first job was working in a road gang, which was actually <laughs> cleaning gutters. So there you go. And, of course, there's not much f- further down you can go than the gutter, so the only way up was up, wasn't it? <laughs> and uh, and one day the guy driving a, a vibrating roller, a big vibrating roller, he got sick, and the guy said, "You didn't you grow up on a farm? I said, I did. He said, can you drive things? I can, if it's got wheels on it, I can drive it. He said, you've got the job. And so I moved up from the gutter, up to the roller. <laughs> from the and, <clears throat> and then the next step was to move. Eventually I was watching the guy driving the back car, and I said, I discovered that I was getting paid uh, $3 an hour and he was getting paid $6 an hour. And I went, that's the job for me. <laughs> <laughs> Double my income in one fell swoop. So, <laughs> so I had a crack at that. And that was a bit of a long, stupid story of because nobody <laughs> teaches you how to drive a backhoe. And it's actually an extremely complicated thing to do. And so That's I awesome. just went for a whole lot of job interviews and got a few minutes each time on until they <laughs> threw me off and realized that I was going to break their machine so they'd get rid of me. But that was some experience. And I just accumulated enough experience over about 50-odd job interviews that on the last 51st one or whatever it was, I got the job. So, and, you know, I think that's just an attitude to life, isn't it? If, yeah. if you're not going to quit, if you refuse to quit, eventually you win. In Australia, we have a guy called Steve Bradbury, and he won a gold medal uh, at the Olympic speed skating. Mm. And he's famous because he was the last man sta- standing. If you watch the Steve, the Steve Bradbury uh, bit of footage that's on YouTube, and you'll see they take off, and he he's running last and he's a long last he's running last he, he got into that group because he did the work and and that's you've got to give him 110 percent because he worked and worked and worked for years to get to the point where he was in the final but he was never going to win it yeah. but he just was running around there doing it and he just hanging and hung in and the first guy went down and he took down the second guy third fourth bang over they all went and he just went zip 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 and the look on his face was you're kidding me. And he won the gold medal. And so that's called, in, in Australia, it's called doing a Bradbury. And, and it's just, if you just refuse to quit, eventually you'll win. You know? That's awesome. And so it's, I've just applied that to everything that I've done. Just don't give up. 
and, uh, and you know, eventually you get there. Hmm. Uh, so you asked me about breadboards, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, well, and even the breadboards. You know, everybody else was making rectangular breadboards. I made an apple and a pear and an onion, and you know, so I just didn't. My brain thought differently. Out of the box. Um, and then I met a bloke who knew a bloke, and he arranged for me and at a show. We saw we got an order for six hundred breadboards, and the most <laughs> breadboards I had ever made was four. They were the four. <laughs> And so, you know, it was about, you know, I think I said to Margaret, right, we, we've got a job here. We, we, I, I'm giving up the backhoe job. And um, and off we went. And so uh, we we worked and worked and, and developed a pine furniture business in Brisbane. Um, and that grew quite quickly to where we had, I think, 23 or 24 people working for us. Wow. And we're producing something like uh, 300 lounge suites and 600 dining room suites a month. Whoa. Um, and it was just pretty crazy and a mass production sort of a setup, but still trying to do a quality job and thinking outside of the box. And I used to stain the pine furniture a really black color and I'd use gold plated fittings on it so that it stood out because I, I knew that. You had to do something that everybody else wasn't doing. Mm -hmm. And um, anyhow, we worked, worked, worked. And then in 1982, um, I managed to get myself on the wrong side of a couple of things. And, and we ended up going broke and lost absolutely everything. And um, ended up with my wife, Margaret, and two kids at the time and a push bike and $20. And that was where we were. Wow. So we went out west to... Um, to Dolby, which is a little country town. We were invited out there by some friends who were moving out there, and I thought, oh, what the heck, let's go. Mm. And we went out to Dolby, tiny little place, and we started working for somebody else for a bit until they also went broke. It was a bit of a tough time in the early 80s, and uh, anyhow, I got the opportunity to take over their business. So we did that, and we started again, and we were back in business, and we started doing restoration work just because some guy walked in one day and said, what do you guys do? Uh, he said to me, could could you restore this little cedar meat safe? Uh, a little, I don't know whether you know what a meat safe is, but it was back in the day you used to uh, hang a wet tea towel on it, put your meat inside it, and it kept the flies off it. It was just a little cabinet thing. And I said, yeah, sure, we could restore that. And that started a really interesting thing that happened because all his mates brought their things in to be restored and suddenly we had a restoration <laughs> business. And that grew again like, Topsy and um, I, in no time flat, we had restored every piece of furniture that was in Dolby. We had done the town, <laughs> done and dusted. And I thought, we, we've got to get out and about. And I, I spoke to a fellow one day who walked in that had a camera over his shoulder. It turned out that he worked for a local TV station and we did a little deal with him and I shot a little bit of footage with some photographs of before and after things and we ran some ads in the country areas and very soon we had people ringing us from quite a long distance away saying can you come to our property can you come to our property and pick this up and restore it and soon I was actually driving about three to four thousand kilometers a week to God. pick up all of this work and bring it back to, to Womba, back to uh, Dolby and keep 
by then maybe nine people employed and it was just crazy. But the great thing about that was that we were pulling apart work that had been made by old masters. And when you do that, you start to understand how furniture should be made and you, yeah. you get a sense of what quality is all about and and you start going, oh, man, look at this. I wonder how they did this. And you knock it all apart and you think about it. And, and so then someone would come in and say, look, you, you, you've restored those chairs. We need to do more. Can you do that? Sure. Sure, we can do that. I always said yes. <laughs> Mark always said, why don't you say that? We don't know how to do that. That's all right. We'll, okay, we'll figure it out. And uh, and there's a lot of stories. And you guys have had a bit of a read of the book. And you, you know that there's lots of stories about the craziness of figuring things out but that what that taught me was that don't get too worried about how long things take if you've got a long-term view of how, you, how things are going to go I always had a long-term view about then I started getting this picture in my head that you know what I think we could do something extraordinary I, I think if we pursue this level of excellence if we just keep chasing it I, you know we could literally take on the world and when, if you think about where we were in a little shed at the back of Dolby in western Queensland and there wasn't even a picture theatre when you went into Ogden the local menswear they put your money in a little basket and clipped it to a machine up in the ceiling and they pulled a rope and it sent it down the end <laughs> no, this is where we were living right it was unbelievable we were we were living in a little tiny two bedroom thing sharing it with uh, anyway was crazy and That's to be thinking amazing. like that in my head there was obviously some level of insanity happening in my head you know <laughs> at the time uh, and you know people would say to you yes that's true because <laughs> i've never given up on that on um, you know let's just push this as hard as we can how far can we go and uh and one of the interesting things was I read like crazy. Um, when I was at school, I hated sport and I used to sneak away from the the sports day and go to the library and I would read. And I read everything that you can imagine. I read the encyclopedias, I read the dictionary, <laughs> every mechanical book that they had, you know, popular mechanics, I read every book. And so you start to have this sense of what's going on as I got into furniture more and more quality furniture i started buying every book i could buy and i often the photographs were only of the outside and i'd be looking at some extraordinary thing that was made by a french master or a german master or an english master and i'd be going oh imagine what that must look like inside it it must be um, look at it look at the detail they've spent a year or two years on the outside Ah, so you can spend a year or two years on the outside. Right. Oh, we should have a crack at that. <laughs> right. <laughs> like a big project. And then one day we got a job to do some work for the English royal family just because of connections that connections and connections to someone that was on the downs near where we were. And and I had to go over. I thought, well, I can't give up on this one. I've got to go and deliver it. So we went over and went to England. And we were going through the Wallace collection and I got permission to get in behind the scenes and have a look at some of these pieces and actually open them up. And honestly, 
my mouth fell on the floor when I saw how badly they were made inside. Right. How mm. little there was attention to detail inside. And I came home from that trip, which we did on a shoestring budget. It was just crazy. But I came home and I said, right, I'm going to make things that are more incredible on the inside than they are on the outside. That's been Love my then goal forever. And I've just wanted to go, right, let's just turn this thing on its ear. And how crazy can you go? What, 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 you know, I'll have more of that and one of them and I'm going to add three of these. And then when you get inside, that, there's going to be two more doors and you'll open that up and then you'll go, you're kidding me. Look inside. <laughs> just recently, I, <clears throat> I was visiting with a client, an old client of mine. One of the great things about this business, our clients become very close friends and... And they, they keep coming back forever. And, uh, you know, I often say to people that our company is a little bit like espresso. It's short, it's very punchy, and it's extremely addictive. <laughs> you know, if you, if you, once you get into the part of collecting some of our work, it's very hard to stop because it's just such great fun. And most of the well, – all of the clients, they love the process of – of building the piece together because it's a bespoke piece. We work with them hand and glove, you know, you know, lots of drawing, lots of coffee and talking and uh, having a meal and discussing what's going to happen next and how we're going to make this look and what have, what ideas have they got that I can then use to inspire this thing. And, and they love it. They love the whole process. Um, and and w one of my clients said to me a long time ago now, he said to me, Dave, what's the most secret compartments you've ever put into a piece and I think at the time it was five and uh, which you know most people put one or two at the time even five was crazy and and he said ah oh, right. what's the most you've ever seen anywhere in the world and I said oh well I think maybe that Reisner had a, a piece that he made that had something like um, 18 or 20 secret compartments from what I can read, you know. Right. I want you to make me a piece that's got the most secret compartments of anything in the entire world ever. Just blow the doors off. Right. So we made him a piece, and I, oh, I think it had 38 secret compartments. 30. Anyway, I got oh, wow. To, I was visiting with him, and it, it had gone to Paris, this piece, and it came back, and he actually has a home here in Australia and I was visiting at that home and here's this beautiful piece and I, wow, isn't that fantastic? And uh, he said, yeah, yeah. And, and he said, found that, that other secret compartment. I said, which one? He said, this one, this one down here. I said, oh, okay. You found the ones up in the top where you lift it up and you have to take the decanter and the glasses out and the three drawers are behind there? Yeah, yeah, no, we found that, we found that. And I said, what, and, the, and you found this one on the side? Yep, and you got that, yep. So what about the ones in the front that you access from behind the drawer? What are you talking about? <laughs> These ones here. There's nothing in there. We've taken all the drawers out. There's nothing there. I said, yeah, but in behind, you haven't found them. No, no. Okay. Hang on. <laughs> Look, we've got to unlock this down here and we pull that drawer out and see that division there. Well, that division lifts out and in the end there's a magnet. And when you pull all the drawers out, you can reach in and, click and see there's a compartment and and right and there were nine compartments he'd never found and this is now maybe 20 years later 
<laughs> that is awesome. Uh, that was so cool. Did that answer the story about the bread book? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, I love how you will allow or include rather the the creation of certain aspects of your work, like like the handles, for example. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course, of course. So, yeah, I love sitting down with clients and getting some inspiration with them about the detail. And, and you know, we sit and we sketch and think about it. And I'll, I'll sketch up some concept and they think, yeah, 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 that, that's like. And then we'll we'll draw that up properly and show it to them. Oh, yeah, now, we, oh, that's beautiful. So then we make a master and I'll show them the master. Oh, wow. Then we take the master, we get the castings done and I show them one of the raw castings. Now they've got, before they had a piece of wood that was covered with, you know, blue mold release paint and it's sort of a little bit light. But now they've got this weighty, beautiful cast handle in their hand. Oh, that's beautiful. So we take that away and now you fettle the handle and clean it all up and you put the bronzing detail on it and buff it off and now it's got the highlights and you give it back to them again and now it's a piece of art and and they're just sitting there going I'm going to be telling my grandchildren how I helped make this piece and how I held all the components in my hand as I went and and I, I was talking to one of my clients just recently <clears throat> he, we'd built him so this is a guy in London we built him this beautiful desk $100,000 desk and He's an, as an Aussie living in London and he wanted a little bit of Australian, how do we put, include Australia? And so we, you might've seen it. There was some detail on it on the, on the, on the Insta page, but it has bronze gum leaves and there's bronze gum leaf detail on the handles. And it's really a, a sweet piece, with a lot of beautiful detail on it. And uh, so of course, if you've got a hundred thousand dollar desk, what do you sit on? Where do you go for your chair? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and what does the chair look like? And so he said, well, I can't find a chair. Well, probably not. <laughs> uh, Nothing so, matches. So we, we sat down and we talked about a chair and how we would introduce aspects of the bronze detail work and, and um, you know, some aspects of it that needed to be very personalised for this gentleman and, so it, it came down to really we had to make everything. Everything had to be handmade. Even the the box, rocket box mechanism and everything was all just a bespoke thing. And um, and I, I said to him, he said, so so what's this going to cost? And I said, oh, look, I don't, I don't know, but I, my best guess is something like about $46,000. And he said, right, 46 right. <laughs> Right. Okay. Uh, okay. So, is it all right? Well, I guess I really. What am What am I going to do? Okay, I'm going to have to do it. So, and it was a, a funny thing. I, I went and saw a mate of mine who's a barrister that afternoon, and he said, "What have you been doing today?" And I said, oh, "I was just mucking around with this design for a chair. I just sketched up." And he's looking at it. He said, "Holy dooly, that's amazing." I said. Uh, What's something like that cost? And I said, oh, I don't know. It's probably going to be north of 40000 And uh, And he looked at me. He said, David, David, you know I'm a barrister, right? I said, yes. He said, you know, I, like I earn serious money. Yeah. He said, I, I, buy, I buy office chairs 
and desks. You you know that you can buy a chair for like two hundred dollars, right? You, you know that. And and that the leather chair that I've got, I I got it and and it was nine hundred dollars. That's a lot of money, you know, for a chair. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Okay. And I go back to my client. Now we're making the chair. The chair takes six months to make and he gets photographs. Basically we photograph and video everything that we do. And I put a, some of them, if I think it's appropriate, I'll put some of them up on the Insta page. But the client gets the lot. He gets a lot of information and, or she. They get a lot of information. And uh, they they get a story that goes with it. And, and as the day goes on they you know weeks they see it growing and building and they see all their stuff and they see stuff that they'll never ever see again because there's all this hidden detail you know where obviously you know you've got a dovetail block supporting this thing and that that's all and then covered up no one ever sees those dovetails again but i show them all of the structure everything being made so he's getting all of this stuff for six months he's getting all this stuff and i deliver the chair and he's sitting in the chair and he's going this is the most comfortable chair. This is better than the rolls. This is better than the chair in the Gulfstream. This is fantastic. I love this chair. So comfortable. He said, David, you know, when you told me this chair was going to be $46,000, and he said, I, I, I went home that day. I said to my wife, David has finally lost it. He's lost it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stick with him because we we... You know, I've got to have a chair to match the, t the desk, but I don't know that we're going to be doing anything else. He's lost it. And he said, but then you started sending me all the details and the photographs right. and the videos. And he said, I look at this, I sit in this chair, I have no idea how you made it for $46,000. Right. It's beyond. Wow. I, yeah. I look at it and I think it probably should have cost $60,000. It's just incredible. And he said, I feel like it's part of me. I understand every part of it. I've seen every little thing being made. It's part of my DNA. I, I love this chair. It's my new favorite thing. And we've got millions of dollars worth of pieces that this gentleman's collected over 20 years. And every, I've heard that story a few times about this is my favorite thing. And we've just delivered some beautiful vellum and bronze and stone bedside tables and tell me they're his new favorite thing so i'm not quite sure which was the real favorite <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's pretty amazing that's, that is amazing that to, to to incorporate them into the detail and they can see that masterpiece unfolding yeah yeah and, and see and what it know takes. all those details yeah. yeah it's all about the story the story is what gives something value yeah you can look you can look at something and you don't know the backstory behind it. It's of no value. And then you discover that it belonged to some incredible person who, who went through incredible struggles in their lives to be able to get to a point where they were able to do what they did in that piece. And all of a sudden now it's like the Mona Lisa. It's, it's, it has extraordinary value right. because it has a story. Mm. And so I encourage people especially obviously in the woodworking community i encourage people to tell the story like you know if you think about it there's a box right it's a box is sitting there 
and it's a great box and you get uh, I don't know you get a thousand dollars for the box and then you come along and you see another box and that box uh, has the story beside it and the story is that I I was uh, walking down the street one day in my hometown and I saw that they were pulling the picture theater down and I, I was oh no look at that pulling so I went in there and I I was looking at it and all the memories came back of when I was a kid and and I remembered sitting in that seat right there, and that's where I got my first kiss. You know, it was right there in that seat, and I, and I thought, I'm, I've got to get a piece of this. So I, I, I said to the guy, "Can I have some of the wood?" So he said, "Yeah." So, so I took the wood and I took it home, and I, and I made this box, and I, I've called it the love box, and it's made from this piece of wood. <laughs> where I got the first kiss. Now, how much is that box worth? Right? Yeah. Because I, I, I get, absolutely, I get. I get fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollars for boxes. You know, I'm making one at the moment. It's twenty-eight thousand dollars, and you know, because why? Well, because it's incredibly valuable in in that it has a great story, and it is documented to the nth degree, and of course, it's beautiful and it's unusual, and it's not something that anybody's ever seen before. All those things are pretty important. It has extraordinary craftsmanship in it it's built to within an inch of its life it's like everything's happening yeah it's uh, pretty amazing. elegant it's a great combination i like to use three different materials in a in a piece um occasionally four and not confuse things i like to simplify it i'll sit there and draw and draw and draw until it gets back to something that's quite simple um and and then you know we work together as a team I, I i'm i'm just the conductor of an orchestra if you think about what a, a conductor of an orchestra does he understands everything he may not play every instrument on the orchestra or if he does he probably doesn't do it anywhere near as good as the girl on the violin in the front row there but he understands how it all works and he's able to pull the best out of people and convince them that they can do more than they thought they could um, i mean mm. a long time I realized that I wasn't the best guy on the bench a long time ago. Probably after I tried to cut one of my fingers off for the third time. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm of better use, you know, on the, on the pencil than I am on the bench. But without having done the work on the bench, I wouldn't, would I? I wouldn't know what was Absolutely. Capable. Without being prepared to invest the time and the effort in, in research, to, to me, you got to be constantly experimenting if you aren't one of my clients one of my very wealthy clients said to me years ago david if you're if you're not reinventing your business every three years you'll die end of story every three years you've got to reinvent your business and so if you look at our if you go back over our stuff you know constantly changing growing better experimenting trying new materials trying new techniques um, you know, we're doing it at the moment. I've, I've got Rick there at the workshop working away on on an, some detail that's going on this beautiful desk with the globes on the desk. You've probably seen that bit yeah. on the Insta page where I finally put Australia in its correct place on top of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love that, that piece. This whole this thing about Down Under is just, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> we're on top we are on top of the world that's awesome let's get this sorted out 
So how many people do you have in the shop uh, working with you uh, at, at one time? Uh, we have two. There's, there's, uh, currently, there are two guys in the shop. There are two guys who work from, three guys who work from home. And then we have another couple of contractors who we use on a, just a constant regular basis. Sure. Uh, they're just yeah. a permanent part of the team. So I guess all up, there's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I guess there's seven or eight of us all up. Uh, but one of the things that I've had to learn is that we don't have to do everything ourselves. Right. For a long time, everything was in-house. I would jealously guard all the secrets that we'd learnt, you know, until I started to realise there's actually some really smart people out there that are much better at this than what I am in this particular, you know, whatever it might have been. We were, I was wanting to make um, the first of the walking canes. We've done a few of the $70,000 walking canes, which is pretty crazy. And, uh, and you know, they take six months to make and they're very, very amazing things. For the, and uh, we were working on it and working on it. And then I thought, you know, this is stupid. Why are we trying to do this? This is working with stainless steel is so hard. And there's this guy, you know, not far away, and he's an engineer, and he's just so good with it, and he's got all of the gear. So we went and saw him, and he went, yep, I can do that. I went, right, <laughs> you've got the job. <laughs> and and he had the problem of dealing with the stainless steel. <laughs> and it felt wonderful. Oh, right? I loved it. I loved it. Oh, yeah. You know, and we still do a lot of metalwork in-house, Um Years ago, back, oh, I don't know, what, must be 25 or 30 years ago, I said to, to my wife, I said, honey, I want to buy a whole bunch of metalworking equipment. Why would you want to do that? And I said, because I want to be able to just experiment and see what we can do. Because there's so limited amount of hardware available. You know, you, the hinges that you can get are really garbage and, you know, they only do certain things. And I want a hinge that will do this and stretch that way while it's opening and turn a bit sideways and and so we we bought all this gear and and we still use it all the time every nearly every day there's somebody in the middle shop doing something making something that just gives us the freedom it allows yeah i don't i don't have to design around hardware i just design and then we think okay well what do we need to make to make all that work it's great that's awesome Right. Sure. Yeah, and it, no, no restrictions. And it also, and it also gives you a background to that. If it is something that this is, you know, we need to farm this out to uh, some an, an expert. You have the mm. base knowledge to be able to say. Well, I mean, we've done all the things. We did one job. Um, you, you know, the two eggs that we did. Those two egg discs. Um, mm -hmm. The secrets and the uh, Millennium Signature disc that were made around the. Uh, mm, 1998, 99, we did those. Um, <clears throat> they took about two or three, three years each, I think, and have wow. been resold. The last I heard, one was resold into the Emirates for 1.6 million, and the other one was sold to a Russian for 1.3 million. Um, and, you know, they, they, there were all these different things on them that we had to do. And in one part, we, we actually built the computer. Like one of my guys was a bit of a techie guy and he understood electronics. So he built a computer that ran 
the thing so that when you opened a drawer, the light would come on. When you did this, that would happen. When you pressed that, the little thing would play its music. And when you did this, the lights would come up and down and make little stars in the ceiling and all the things that it did. And, and, he, and you know, that's great. But how do you, what happens if he leaves and how, what, you know, there's a limit to all that sort of stuff. It's crazy. So now we don't do that. We have an engineering company around the corner and I want something like that done. I go and see them and they, they've got this PLC unit they pick up off the shelf and they program it. Done. So often you've just got to stretch outside and think, who else could help me with this? You know, I don't have to be the expert. I can be the conductor of the orchestra. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You don't right. have to... I, think, I think that's a, a really important thing to remember because I think as craftspeople, especially starting out, you want to be in control of everything, which you quickly learn. You just, Like you said, you just can't and you quickly learn that you're not the best person for this particular thing. So get over it and get the guy like Ramon to do my marquetry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's awesome. Um, so in so many ways, I think people restrict what they're able to do because they want to try and do everything themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. if you really want to stretch and move out into the big wide world and there's a much bigger world out there than the local craft market if you're prepared to do the work to to do that and, and often that means collaboration um, partnerships are the, just the best thing you know partnerships in marketing partnerships in making they're great and and it mm -hmm. allows you to do stuff that you you would never have even thought of doing you know I've, I've got a right. question I'm playing with at the moment that's going to have a beautiful carved glass ball on it by somebody who's getting themselves famous on Instagram that carves glass balls anyway I'll leave that one out there okay. <laughs> speaking of partnerships can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Rolls Royce yeah I was wanting to go there that's, <laughs> that's pretty cool yeah sure um, okay so a lot of people want to know how something like that happens and and I think the important thing is that it's all that has gone before that gets you to the point where something like that can happen. Uh, right. I did not go to Rolls Royce. Could you imagine if, like, you're over there to Goodwood and you knock on the door and you say to the lady <laughs> in the office, "Hi, uh, I'm David Boucher. I, I'm from a town called Toowoomba in Queensland, Australia." At which point she's starting to look at you, squeezing, squinting at you down her nose. And then you say, and I, I'd like to do a partnership with Rolls Royce. At that point is where the two big guys come and they pick you up and they take you out and they throw you on the ground. And the lady says, and don't come back, right? So that's what's going to happen if you go and knock on Rolls Royce's door. But what happens if it goes the other way, which is what happened here, where they knock on your door? That's, and the only way you're going to get someone like Rolls Royce to knock on your door is by being exceptional and just absolutely absolutely punching this whole idea of excellence the pursuit of excellence mm -hmm. and um you know i i tried for a long time to be perfect and perfect is impossible impossible uh if you think about what it takes to achieve a level of excellence and then if you want to get another 20 percent more than that you've just more than doubled the time that you're taking on the job and if you want to get another 10 percent more than that you've doubled the time in the job and if you want to go another five percent above that you've doubled the time of the job 
right? So you know, you've got to get your head around all of that. Is someone going to pay you all of that money? Are you going to survive, or will you be broken? So you you've got to you can't go for perfection, but you can go for excellence. And excellence is I'm never going to be happy with this. Uh, whatever we do, we're always going to be able to improve. We're always going to be able to improve. There's going to be a better way to go. And we're just going to get smarter at doing that. We'll spend more and more time on design before we start. And we'll consult with people who are smarter than us. And we'll find people who can design better than I can and help me design. And they mightn't be able to do what I want, but they can get it in a direction that I'm going. And then I can help them to design what I want to design. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and together, now we're a team. Now we're a partnership. And now, together, we can do way more than I can do by myself. Way more. So if you've got that attitude and, and you're producing this beautiful stuff and you're experimenting and working with materials and doing beautiful finishes, then one day you get asked to show some, some of your pieces at an exhibition and it happens to be put on by the local Rolls-Royce dealer in Sydney. And... He says, uh, you know, we're, we're having an Art Deco car come and it's, it's got an Art Deco pinstripe and it's got a little Art Deco detail up on here and we call it the Art Deco car. And uh, you make some contemporary Art Deco furniture. Could you? Could we borrow some of your furniture and, and spread it around and make the place look nice for the dinner we're doing? And then they're looking at it all and they're talking to you and then they say, actually would you mind talking a bit about the furniture just to help us with the dinner? That, that would be really nice. So you go, sure. So you come along and you get a free dinner and you're sitting in a room with 20 people who can afford a Rolls Royce and you talk for 20 minutes and everybody enjoys it. And afterwards, two guys come up and say, hi, um, let me introduce myself. I'm one of the directors of Rolls Royce and this gentleman's one of the, is the general manager, regional direct, regional general manager. Uh, and we just are amazed by what you're doing here. Would you be able to do something like this in one of our cars? Mm. <laughs> and I looked at them both and said, yes, of course we can. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which, which was because brave, you always say which, yes. <laughs> which was a brave move, let me tell you, because it was way more complicated than I thought. Like multiplied by a thousand percent, it was made hard. We really had to, we had to invent, I think we invented five different processes. Uh, what, we had to invent a, a glue that was at point, point one, point one, I think so. Point, point one five, about, I thought. No, no, the glue layer. We only had point six to work in. We had to get the skins oh. down to point five and we had point one for the glue and we had to make a, so we got the hot press and we started putting glue between two layers uh, sheets of, uh, of polythene and we would press it in the hot press and get it so that it, it was still viable as glue but we'd got it down as thin as we could and then we'd peel the two sheets off, whack it down, put the stuff on top of it and press it like crazy real quick and then get the bond to hold. All these things that you just got to stretch yourself. Yeah. Sure. I think, I think it's important that we say what, what that was. So that's ah. uh, Chagrin, right? Uh, is, Chagrin. That, is that the Chagrin? Chagrin. Right. Why don't you why don't you why don't you give the explanation of what Chagrin is? Because I don't think everybody knows what that material is. Okay, so uh, 
you want the well a short version <laughs> short version yeah i mean just to, just just so people can have an understanding because it's it's a signature piece of yours is the chagrin right uh so chagrin is is stingray skin so um in the uh, asian countries they eat uh all sorts of different fish and stingray is one of the fish that they eat and they actually farm them just like in australia we farm salmon um and they farm stingrays and uh when you uh, cook your fish what do you do with the skin you throw it in the bin well they do exactly the same thing and and so we found um a guy up there whose brother had a tannery this guy had a a string of seafood restaurants and he had all these stingrays skins that he was chucking in the bin he had a brother who had a tannery we talked them into having a crack at tanning it which they've eventually worked out how to do and they're able to produce quality skins for us in colors that we want and we can do that in any color we want Uh, how i got involved in stingray skin is another story many years ago i client who had an original ruleman piece beautiful little desk and it had um stingray skin inlay in it so chagrin just on the technical point so stingray skin once it's tanned is still stingray skin it's stingray leather it's now flexible with bones all over it little tiny bones and uh, doesn't look like anything like what you see as stingray as chagrin. So once you've inlaid the piece of leather into a piece of timber and you've sanded through the top bones, when you when you colour it, you stain it whatever colour, so say it's black, the black will only go in maybe 0.1 of a mil into the bone and when you sand through and sand that down flush, now you can see the white centres so you'll see the black where you've sanded through around the outside and you see the white bone in the middle. And that's why you get this two-tone look of black and white, black and white, or blue and white, or red and white, or whatever it is, the colour. That's how that that's happens. Awesome. So once it's sanded, it's now called chagrin or galachan. And uh, so I'm looking at this thing and I have no idea what I'm looking at. He sent it up to me to be repaired. I'm looking at it and going, what on earth is that? This is, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. So I went and saw a guy at the university and I said to him, have you ever seen anything like this? And he came back to me about a week later and he said, I think that it is the skin of a spotted Mediterranean dogfish. And I went, right. (laughs) (laughs) Got a a few of those in the backyard. Uh, And I said, I've never heard of a spotted Mediterranean dogfish. And he said, well, you probably know it in Australia as a stingray. And I went, right, how on earth? <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I have no idea. Anyhow, so we just repaired it as best we could and sent it back again. But I was then on a mission. What was this stuff all about? So I started reading all about it, Galashat, Chagrin, and there was no information on how to work with it. There were photographs of it and lots of old photos of Art Deco furniture with it but nobody would tell you how it was done. Um, I started realising that if it took a long time to learn how to do it, and if people had spent a long time learning how to do it, they certainly weren't going to tell me how to do it. <laughs> I had to figure it out. 
So the first thing that we did was uh, <clears throat> I found out that there was a World Leather Fair at Linapelle in in northern Italy. So we arranged to get ourselves over to Linapelle and I walked around the halls and I saw stingrays, stingray skin, tanned, hanging up. I bought some. We brought it back home. It was not sanded. Um, the skins vary in thickness from <clears throat> about one and a half mil thick out on the outside edge. In the centre where you'll see that there's mainly two but usually three bigger what they call pearls. They are really large, three large bones. Uh, at that point, it can be up to six millimetres thick. And so we're now, I'm figuring out that we've got to sand this to get this look. We've got that far. Uh, so we nailed it down and I got out a belt sander and we had a crack. And <laughs> uh, actually, we glued it down. We glued it down and hit it with a belt sander. And of course, what happens when you sand bone, do you think? <laughs> gets really hot and what happens when it gets really hot to the glue that's holding it down well the glue lets go and now we have a small matter of the entanglement of the skin into the belt tanner <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh see so there was it was just non-stop struggle to learn how to use this damn stuff and how did you deal with the various thicknesses and so you know we we used to carve away and fit each individual skin. You would carve away because some parts are six mil thick and some parts are four mil and some parts are three and out on the edge it's one and a half and, and you want it flush. You don't want a big bumpy thing sitting on top. You want it flush. And then how do you get a finish on it? And, and, and it would, we'd have to work it and work it and lacquer it and lacquer it and sand it back and lacquer it and sand it back and and uh, 30 coats, you know, often just to get it to work. And, and we developed a look that uh, one of my clients, who's a, he's got a, you know, the super yacht and the jet and the whole bit, and he travels the world. He spent, he told me one day, I've spent the last 18 months traveling around the world trying to find somebody who does what you do cheaper. <laughs> and he said, I, I hate to admit this, but I haven't been able to find anybody anywhere that can do what you're doing and get the finish that you're achieving and I've seen that now I've been around the world quite a few times and I've seen people's work with Chagrin and nobody is achieving the result that we get so you can see now why Rolls-Royce said what they said because it turns out they'd been trying to do Chagrin and they'd worked out oh, it was wow. going to take them 10 to 15 years to get to a level of expertise that would be sufficient to put it into their cars. And here I was doing it. So they went, uh, let's just use him. And that's, that's how it wow. They found an expert. That's amazing. <laughs> they, like, like you said, they, they found the guy. They didn't have to do it. <laughs> but the great part about it was, was I got to put my signature on that car. So it's got four tread blades oh, on it. Oh, cool. Handmade in Toowoomba, Australia, handmade in Goodwood, UK, which is very cool. That yeah, is very amazing. cool. <laughs> so there you go. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I, I got to work on a Skoda one time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if they still make Skodas. 
apparently they're very very uh, sharp cars these days. They've really got their they're, they're a lot nicer than what they used to be. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Oh, that's awesome, man! Amazing. You're talking about the three year and reinventing yourself. How about how about three years time from now? What are you seeing? What are you thinking that you're going well, to continue to do? Uh, well, we're really starting to push into mechanical furniture, and uh, we've got some really extraordinary things that are in the pipeline. Um, I, it's going to be tricky because when we're at that level of of work with some clients, where this is we're talking about really expensive pieces that. Uh, clockwork and weight driven engines that we've got to design and build and this particular piece is going to have some very very special and precious things in it and uh, you know you'll you'll operate it you'll wind it up and it will sit there and do what it does um, but it's very much in the uh, early stages and it will take a while to build and so you know out of respect for the client and their privacy, I'm not going to be talking about it, um, <clears throat> which does make it hard to keep an Insta-feed flat chat yeah. when, you, <laughs> when you can't talk much about it. But we, we, you know, we're doing other things, lots of other things as well, so of course. Right. But um, I'm really taken with the idea of things that do things, you know, human power. Uh, I I like the idea of disconnecting from the grid uh, not being reliant on on electricity uh, I think that's a really good thing and you know I've done a bit of stuff over the years where we've had to rely on electricity and I always think oh man that's just also what happens when it all falls apart and what happens when technology changes and so we try and outthink technology um, that that little beautiful desk with the globes on it that's actually currently going to be a computer desk but it's entirely designed to be a beautiful writing desk because I know that one day computers as we know them won't look anything like that. Mm. You know, I've read enough science fiction to see what it's going to be like. <laughs> Nothing right. like what we understand it today. And so, uh, you know, you can't just go and make a computer desk for a client, even though that's what they ask for. You often have to give them what they don't know they want. And that's a matter of you thinking outside of the box and thinking a year, 10 years, 20 years in front, um, I think 100 years in front. I always, I, I'll tell you something, it blew my brain. I read once that Soshiro Honda was working on a 100-year business plan. I went, oh, how stupid is that? The guy's 60, what's he 100-year business plan? <laughs> something. Like, what's he on? And then I finally got it. Like he he could see that his grandchildren, right, would be working in the business, and he wanted to give them guidance as to where this should go and and what it could look like. And he uh, he dreamed and he imagined how big could this be? How fantastic could this be? And uh, look at Honda; they're making jets. You know, yeah. like mm-hmm. it's incredible. I, I was I one one. One year, I'm, I, when I was a young pup, I got into motorbikes, and, and I, I went to the to a big um, uh, event down in Melbourne, 
And here is a 125cc Honda. It is four valves per cylinder, V16. And I'm sitting there looking at things like a sewing machine. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? This is Honda. Right? And that's where this guy's brain was. You know, how far can I push? How, what can I do? And he was thinking global. And it's something that really impressed me. And I thought, okay, you know, how far can we go? What, what, what's possible? Is it, is it feasible that you, we could take on the world and do something that no one's done and, and create a name that's you know, synonymous with excellence and really extraordinary stuff that will you know, inspire my, my kids and inspire my grandchildren? And, and that's really what I've been trying to do. And along the way, I've met some fantastic craftspeople and been inspired by them. I continually am inspired by Insta. It's just extraordinary. The talent that's out there in the world blows my brain. Thank you. Very kind of you, David. Very kind of you. So many people that I'd like to be able to work with. It'd be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm talking with Nathan Gorman at the moment, Nathan Glass, and uh, <clears throat> I've come up with this idea for this fantastic key and get Nathan to do a glass ball with his beautiful engraving work that he does. And uh, and we're working on a bar, and, and so there's this lock, and you roll a section out of the road, and you you open this box, and when you open the box, there's a battery pack underneath it, and that fires a light into the end of the key and it travels down to the head of the key where the glass ball is and it illuminates the glass ball and you pick it up and when you push it into the lock the same thing happens another light fires down the inside and then you turn the lock and you operate the big lever and the big shaft turns and a lever rolls over and a big weight takes over and lifts up this fantastic bar out of the middle of it oh, wow Imagine that. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Incredulous. Yeah. So that's where I'm going with different things. And so, and, yeah. and and this 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 person's name, uh, could you say it again? Nathan. Nathan from Nathan Glass. So Nathan he's on Insta. Okay. Uh, yeah, but yeah. that's his username, I'll Nathan Glass. Yeah, yeah. Nathan uh, Glass. I want to check him out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very cool. He's a really cool dude. He's over there in the States somewhere. And I, I I completely agree with you on the the mechanical end. If you're making the things and you make them so that they're not reliant on a solenoid that is something that is happening like now, but in 20 years will no longer be available. Um, you know, yeah. that 100-year plan. Again, right. self-contained pieces that... And make things repairable, you know, like the ultimate luxury to me is something making something that can be repaired in 150 years' time. And, and so if you're always thinking in that sort of terms, that's luxury. You know, we, we're in a world there today where people focus on when's, when's the next phone coming out? When do I throw this one in the bin and get the next one? When do I, when's the new whatever it is? And we're talking about making things that will get repaired and repaired, you know, yeah. It's just it's a whole different world. It's so so nice to be in that world. It's so nice to be in a place where you're making quality. It's fantastic. What a place we to be in, you know, to be alive today in a world like this. 
I get very excited by it. (laughs) I'm just starting to understand stuff. I'm just starting to figure out how to really do some cool things. Uh, (laughs) Just starting. Wow. (laughs) Very cool. Well, David, I just wanted to say thank you for being on. Um, you know, we've had the the connection hasn't been the best, which we apologize for. Um, it's the the way of the internet. I'm sure 20 years from now it'll get better and better. But uh, we really wanted to thank you for for being on. I know all three of us were very excited to to have you on and and get a chance to hear some of your background story and just Absolutely. just hear like how the heck do you do the stuff that you guys do yeah <laughs> refuse to quit is a refuse big thing well, <laughs> i mean it's just inspiring to her it, it, it definitely i know i'm coming away wanting to push my skill set and, and think outside the box and stuff so it's it's been a real pleasure talking with you uh, my pleasure really really enjoyed it great fun mm-hmm. all right ramon well you want to you want to lead us out ramon yeah, absolutely, David. Um, you know, it was just an absolute honor to have you on the show. We have talked about it for quite a while. You know, your your background and your story, they're just incredible. And your ambition is infectious and your tenacious approach to life is truly inspiring. And and now I might have to unfollow you on Instagram so I can feel better about myself. <laughs> so, so truly, uh, thank you tons. And thank and Ramon, you all, Ramon. One second, yeah. Ramon. I'm sorry. What? Let's let's talk about where people can find oh, David's yeah, stuff because I really think it's important that if people are listening to the podcast, yeah, to to go to like the website, go to to Boucher and Co. And Co um, website and look through look through the feed. I mean, I, we we can talk about how beautiful this work is and how like you know how just incredible it is but it doesn't do it justice it, it's yeah a, it's you a have to see level. it yeah i mean look the, the, the website is is okay but that's not my favorite place to be my okay. my thought is that the instagram account is what's where it's all happening because that's where the videos are and, right and the best way to look at the instagram i think is is uh, this is what i do with other people's is that i i look at it on a desktop so that i can just relax back and go down through their feed and and you know ours is no different there's thousands of hours of videos and photographs on our on our feed mm-hmm. and and when you dig down you see some really cool stuff that uh you know I, like i'm i just think it's incredible that you can have videos that people will watch and there'll be fifteen thousand people watch something it's just nuts you know yeah, yeah. it really is <laughs> yeah yeah, definitely. Yeah, Ch- check out the Instagram. Check out the website. Keep an eye out for the book in what two years? <laughs> three years? Is that your three-year plan? Uh, I, I'd really like to say that it was up and running within the next twelve to eighteen months. So let's see how we're going. We're getting close. Let's it's get- it's going to be exciting. Yeah. Yep. Pursuing excellence. Good fun. Well, thank you all once again for listening in on this episode of Woodworkers Podcast. We absolutely appreciate it. As always, if you have any questions about this show or past shows, suggestions for topics for future shows, feel free to send us an email, and that's info at woodworkerspodcast.com or any one of our Instagram accounts, including at woodworkerspodcast. And so on behalf of Ben, Phil, and the incredibly inspiring, tenacious master of his craft, David Boucher, 
I'm Ramon, and we'll catch you right here on the next episode of Woodworkers Podcast. Thanks a lot, guys. Yes, thank you. Thank you, David. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, David. Very much appreciated.